Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. For millennia, when couples were not able to conceive and bear their own children, their options were somewhat limited and not at all available if the complication was on the part of the female. These matters were not discussed much then and still are not much discussed now, even among the couples involved. However, in the past decades, medical science has developed in vitro fertilization, which can accommodate the egg from the intended mother or from another woman and the sperm from the intended father or from another man, depending on what is needed. And then the gestation of the fertilized egg can take place in a woman who is not the biological parent of the gestating newborn. The many issues surrounding surrogacy form the conversation in this edition of Radio Curious when we visit with Katie Dow, who in 2009 studied the issue of surrogate parenthood as the thesis for her doctoral dissertation in anthropology at the London School of Economics. Katie Dow joined us in the studios of Radio Curious in Ukiah, California on March 8, 2010, and began by describing what surrogacy is. Katie Dow, welcome to Radio Curious. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I'm curious about your recent PhD in anthropology, right? Yeah on surrogacy, and I presume that that is where either the father's sperm or perhaps even a surrogate father and uh, the mother's egg or perhaps a surrogate mother is um, put into another woman who carries the pregnancy. Yeah, that's right. Usually surrogacy refers to just the maternal side but basically, you can either use the egg of the surrogate mother and have intrauterine insemination. That's also called traditional surrogacy. Or you can use the egg of what's called the commissioning or intending mother, who's the mother who will actually bring up the child. Or you can have a donor egg and use IVF and then implant that in the surrogate mother. And the surrogate mother is the one that actually carries the child to term and then gives it up when it's born to the intending parents. And IVF means? It's in vitro fertilization. That's when you take the sperm and the egg and you bring them together in a Petri dish rather than a test tube, although it's often called test tube babies in the UK. And fertilization occurs in vitro rather than in utero. So that means sort of in a, in a glass dish in the lab rather than actually inside a woman's body. From your accent, you're from the United Kingdom. And That's right. Where? I originally come from Cambridge, and I currently live in London. But when I was doing my research for my PhD, I was based at the London School of Economics, but I did my fieldwork in northeastern Scotland. Why did you choose that area? There's a number of reasons, really. It was partly a choice based on the fact that I was doing my first field work as an anthropologist and I wanted to go somewhere that was relatively unfamiliar and that would have some kind of differences 
while still being within, in some senses, my own cultural background. There are also some reasons that were more directly linked to the topic I was studying. So, for example, there's a very low uptake of surrogacy in Scotland compared to England and Wales. So how did you go about gathering the information that you sought? There were two main processes, really. One was a more sort of traditional anthropological approach of what we call participant observation, which has also been referred to as kind of deep hanging out. Um, so that's where you live amongst people and sort of live a life as similar to theirs alongside them and get involved in a community or people's workplaces or wherever you can kind of ingratiate yourself into a society, you do that. And then the main way of recording data for that is taking field notes. So you write down any conversations you've had that have been particularly interesting, any impressions you have of the area, of the people, funny incidents that happen, just recording everyday life. But that's more of the non-participatory observer. The, the participant side is that you're not observing from the sidelines, you're actually involved in the everyday lives. So, for example... I got involved in doing local voluntary work, which happened to be about wildlife conservation. So I was participating in the sense that I was there doing the same kinds of work that other local volunteers were doing. I was living with these people. I was eating meals with them. I was talking to them every day. I was seeing them as I came out of the shower in the morning, you know, these kinds of things. So... In that sense, it's very participatory. The other side was that I also did a series of interviews with people specifically about surrogacy. Tell us about the interviews. What did you ask? How did you formulate the questions? Well, I had a series of questions and they were sort of semi-formal. So if the conversation or the interview ended up going down interesting paths, then there was enough freedom to pursue that. But I started with generally some questions about the interviewee's experience of family life and tried to get a sort of insight into the place that family and parenthood, if they were parents or if they expected to become parents in the future, had in their lives. And then moved into some more general questions about other forms of assisted conception like IVF that we've just mentioned or donor insemination, egg donation adoption as well just to sort of get an idea of what kind of connections people might make I also talked to quite a lot of people about how they felt about blood donation and organ donation as a kind of parallel issue and then once I laid the groundwork with those questions I then asked them specifically about surrogacy and the questions were what they thought about it generally a very open question about that and then I particularly also asked people about what they thought about commercial surrogacy so that's when a surrogate mother gets paid for her service and then what they thought might motivate a surrogate mother to become a surrogate mother in the first place and what they thought the sort of the ideal scenario would be for a surrogacy arrangement were the subjects that you interviewed people across the social spectrum in terms of education, economics, background, as well as women who could bear their own children and women who could not? They weren't as varied in terms of socioeconomic groups as I would have liked. They were mostly 
quite middle class. Most people were university educated. There was a range of ages, people from teenage up to people in their 60s. And I did interview people who were parents and people who weren't. And those who weren't all made the assumption that they would be fertile and they probably would end up having children of their own. And I think all but one of them planned to do so. So my assumption is that when you started developing the questionnaire and then you presented it, did you find that in the course of presenting it, there were new questions that occurred to you that you then included into the questionnaire generally? Actually, one of the things that I did go back and ask about a bit more was sperm donation because I hadn't asked everyone about it when I was doing the interviews initially. And I found that it was actually a very useful thing to think about while I was analysing people's ideas about commercial surrogacy. So I went back and asked some people who I hadn't already asked about what they felt about the idea of men being paid to donate sperm and whether it was the same, brought up the same kind of issues and had the same kind of moral framework that it would for surrogacy. We're visiting with Katie Dow in this edition of Radio Curious, who recently received a PhD in anthropology from the London School of Economics. And we're talking about her research for her doctoral dissertation on surrogacy in northern Scotland. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Katie, what were some of the questions that you asked? Um, Well, the questions were really... Do you think it's acceptable for a couple to use the services of a surrogate mother to have a child of their own? And then I also asked whether it would be acceptable for people to pay a surrogate mother for her services. So what were the responses of the people with whom you spoke about the acceptability of surrogacy? One of the reasons why I was very interested in surrogacy is that it was... In the UK, at least, um, I think it's probably been slightly different here in the States. In When people first started to use surrogacy, it was an issue that was portrayed in the media and to some extent in academic writings as something that was a cause for concern and seemed to provoke, in the tabloid press at least, some sort of level of moral panic. And what that centred on particularly was why on earth a woman would want to be a surrogate mother and how can anyone possibly think of being paid to produce a child, basically? And then also, how could a woman give up a child that she's born? So based on that, I was very interested to see whether people's responses were as black and white as the media seemed to suggest. And basically, they weren't. So people tended to have very nuanced answers and they would say, on the whole, they said that they thought it would be best if people, if women acted as surrogate mothers because they wanted to help someone. And in that sense, it it was broadly speaking an altruistic gesture. Um, But at the same time, they also said, if she does receive some payment for that, then that's maybe not necessarily a bad thing per se because there's no reason why she should be left out of pocket from doing it. But also 
actually, you know, if she's still motivated by altruism, that doesn't necessarily mean that she can't still be paid. And this is a very interesting thing to me because a lot of the time in the media and also in academia, we assume for Western capitalist societies that there's this very rigid separation between the world of money and work and capital on the one hand and then the world of love and family and and there's also very much a gendered dimension to that as well. What was that gender dimension? Well that generally the the work and money side of the dichotomy is is tends to be associated with men and then the family and love tends to be associated with women and obviously these are this is not you know trying to suggest that this is the reality but this is kind of like the um, cultural ideals that are there that people draw upon when they're making judgments about something like surrogacy. So I found that actually people were very non-simplistic in in the way they thought about these things. And actually, you know, so this is an example. So a woman could get paid for being a surrogate mother, and that didn't necessarily mean that she was acting like a man. It didn't necessarily mean she was selling her body or anything like that. They were quite pragmatic, really. They said, well, you know, why shouldn't she be paid? just because she's being paid does not mean that she's motivated by money. Did you do any correlation as to the answers that the people you interviewed gave mm. in relation to their religious background? Well, it was quite simple, really, because most people generally weren't religious. Was that by happenstance, or was that uh, part of the culture of the geographical area where you were doing your work? It's partly happenstance, but it's also just that um, there aren't very high levels of religiosity in the UK in general. Um, it tends to be, and I think this is true of the group of people I, I interviewed as well, that people probably identify themselves as Christian or at least coming from a Christian background, but they probably don't go to church. They may actually be more, may fit more closely actually into the category of agnostic really in terms of their practice. How about the answer to the question of what would you anticipate a woman to feel when she bore the child and then gave it up? Well this is another really meaty question and a point of concern was the whole idea of the maternal bond was really really important um, which is partly something that I predicted but again it was it was not simplistic so the people I interviewed were concerned that a that a surrogate mother might form a bond with the child that she had in her womb and also that once she'd made that bond and then she had to give the child up would she be able to do that and then going on from that if she found she couldn't did she have a right to say look I can't do it I'm keeping the child so we explored this quite a lot in the interviews and what did you learn what well, were the answers well again they were they were quite varied and it was interesting because some people said well if it's her egg then she's just going to bond with the child there's there's no question about it and you know therefore you can completely sympathize with her deciding that the child is hers and you know can you really expect her to give up what's her child and then some people would say, you know, as a result of that, maybe surrogacy is not a good idea, at least not traditional surrogacy, where it's the surrogate's egg. And then other people would say, well, you know, if it's gestational surrogacy, so it's not the surrogate's egg, but, you know, she's she's carried that child for nine months and that 
could quite easily bring about a, a bonding process anyway and they would make the same same argument so they would say well she's bonded with the child because it's been inside her for nine months and she's given birth to it and that's a valid claim as well so this kind of goes to the heart of the analysis in a way because what I was really interested in is how people make claims about the ethics of surrogacy and the way that they particularly use ideas of what's natural or unnatural and the maternal bond is a very interesting example of this because in a way you could make an argument that a surrogate's claim to have a natural maternal bond to a child is based in gestation or it's based in the genetic connection of having the the egg or it's both but there's this sort of grey area about it there's no obvious reason why one example is more or less natural than the other sort of objectively speaking did you interview any women who had been surrogate mothers no it was it was more sort of like a cultural analysis so it was what people think about this issue and how that reflects on values in in their society and their culture is is really the focus. So what do we do with the knowledge that you've gained and that you've reduced uh, to writing in your doctoral thesis? Well the main beneficiary as it were of of my research is anthropology because it's ended up being quite an abstract and intellectual process and in particular the concept of nature is a really really important subject within anthropology and and that's true in the states as well as in the UK and elsewhere in cultural anthropology and in social anthropology because traditionally what anthropologists have done is they've gone to other societies which seem very different and they've gone to learn about them in order to just inform our knowledge about the diversity of humanity I suppose which is completely worthwhile but in more recent years, anthropologists have tend to think, oh, hang on, what about us? And we're making all these assumptions about ourselves when we compare with other societies. How much do we actually know about ourselves and our own cultures? And so we've sort of taken a step back and turned around the other way and looking at ourselves and anal- analysing our own kind of real core concepts. And one of these is nature. The concept of nature. Yeah. Can you describe that concept for us from the anthropological point of view? Well, I can only talk about it in terms of, in the context of um, the UK and possibly you could extend that to the Western world. Um, But nature is, the, the whole reason why it's interesting is it's a very multifaceted concept and it's something that people use to talk about the natural world, you know, the the land, animals, trees, plants, that kind of thing. That's quite a specific usage, but that it's also how people talk about what's sort of normal. For for example, human development, you know, a child growing into an adult, That that's in some ways a, a, a so-called natural process. It's, you know, the idea, the idea that things come naturally. And then it's also people use it, and this is the particular way that I'm interested in is how people talk about what's moral. But moral is defined from a generally a theological or religious perspective. Yeah, but not Mm -hmm. only. That's true in a lot of cases, but 
I mean, I think if you just think about the environmental movement, for example, um, as well as how people talk about issues like surrogacy, people refer to nature and ideas of what's natural or unnatural to talk about what's moral. So something that I'm particularly interested in is, I don't know if you have the same phrase in, in the US, but in the UK, people don't generally talk about the green movement so much anymore. They talk about ethical living. And that's all about living ethically, but it's very much informed by ideas of what's natural and how best to live in harmony with or closer to the natural world. And so there's this very close connection between nature and ethics. And that's also true in issues like surrogacy, because people will talk about giving nature a helping hand for example, is a very common phrase that people use when they talk about IVF or surrogacy or you know egg donation. But they also talk about messing around with nature or, as you said, playing God. So again, you know, I don't think you can say it's just about nature. Obviously, religion, even if people aren't professedly religious and they don't go to church every week, you know, those ideas are there in, in the wider culture. So, I mean, to come back to your original question, nature is just... It's a concept that is really important in in the UK and in Western societies because it sort of touches on everything and it's a really important reference point when people are making moral arguments or when they're making other kinds of arguments as well. And also within anthropology in particular, it's going back to the dichotomies I was talking about earlier with love and money and so on, culture is um, the sort of the pair with nature so there's this other idea that nature is whatever's comes before culture sort of you know comes in and adds on top so that's really why it's so key to anthropology well that brings us to the next question which is now that you have launched yourself in a (laughs) professional career with this area of study Mm -hmm. what do you plan to do with the rest of your precious life well, academically and or personally. I treat it very preciously, certainly. Um, my initial plans, my immediate plans, are to first work on some publications based on my research to really kind of refine my ideas a bit more and also, you know, get them out there and have lots of discussions and have that process, which is great. And I hope to turn my thesis into a book. That would be wonderful because um, I really enjoy the writing process most of the time and I'm also starting to think about a, another research project and I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet but I'm very interested in pursuing further these kinds of issues and I'm thinking tentatively because it's a very controversial subject I know here and in the UK to a certain extent about doing some more work on abortion and um, people's experiences of that because as I said this research largely it's going it's it's academic research and it benefits the academic community more than anyone else and I would really like to do a project that's able to kind of inform people outside academia's ideas and maybe even go into policy and campaigning and to inform that and just to have a wider reach really than just academia would would be really great so those are kind of my professional plans at the moment. Um, personally, right now, I'm just enjoying being here in California, 
visiting friends and learning about this area which you know I feel really lucky to have the opportunity to get to know and just to have a bit of a break and a, a regroup and a rethink about what what comes next really. In your rethinking and in mm. your contemplation mm. of what you've done were there any particular moments of revelation a eureka moment or an aha moment that came to you? Funnily enough, um, I actually had a bit of an aha moment just watching TV (laughs) with my friend Hannah when we were watching an episode of the 30 Days documentary that Morgan Spurlock does, which was about a pro-choice campaigner going and living amongst some pro-life, a pro-life organisation. And it just reminded me of why I... I'm interested in these kinds of topics in the first place is I I am very passionate about issues around sexual and reproductive health and being in America as well it reminds me that there there are problems with healthcare systems everywhere and you know there are problems in the UK as well but that I feel really strongly about kind of doing something about these inequalities and so this is why I've been thinking about this second research project on this issue is it just reminded me that I think that personal passions can be a really good motivator for for any kind of work but including academic work. I've always found that to be true myself. (laughs) And finally, uh, Katie Dow, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious and before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? On the, the plane over to San Francisco a few weeks ago, I read a book called A Meaningful Life, which is by L.J. Davis. And um, I really enjoyed it just partly because it's very funny and very well written, but also because it's the story is of uh, a man who wakes up around the time of his 30th birthday and realises his life isn't meaningful. And he has this crisis about what he's going to do about that and sort of there's no real resolution to this but he ends up buying this completely rundown house in Brooklyn and this is sort of in the 70s before Brooklyn was trendy as it is now and it's all about how he's trying to rebuild this house and it's all a big metaphor for his life but what I like about it is on the surface it seems like a satire of the everyday life where he has a wife and he has a normal nine-to-five job and it's, um, you know, it's all pretty mundane. But actually, I think it's a satire of the idea that that's not meaningful. And I think that's quite a nice message, really. And, yeah, it's just an enjoyable book, really, and very, very funny. Well, Katie Dow, congratulations on your recently received doctorate in anthropology from the London School of Economics and for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Katie Dow received a PhD in anthropology from the London School of Economics in 2010. The book she recommends is A Meaningful Life by L.J. Davis. This program was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious in Ukiah, California on March 8, 2010. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You can also subscribe to the Radio Curious podcast by clicking on our website. 
Our programs are also available in CD format. To get a copy, visit our website, radiocurious.org, for further details. And we appreciate your thoughts and ideas about our programming and do enjoy hearing from you. Our address is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Our email address is curious at radiocurious.org, and the phone number is 707-462-6541. Our programs are recorded in our studios in Ukiah, California. Hannah Bird heads our post-production staff. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us.